Today we are continuing our series on foundations, and this week we're going to talk about confession. <laughs> now I know that's probably not most people's favorite subject, um, or one that we, you know, we try to avoid if we're honest with ourselves, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not an easy part of Christianity, but it is a major part of our walk with God. So what I want to do is I want to take a moment. And I want you to close your eyes. If you feel comfortable, open your hands. Now I want you to think about how you view confession. Is it negative? Is it positive? Is it changing? Just ask the Holy Spirit to show you in this moment, how do you feel about confession? Father God, we come before you today with hearts ready to hear, minds willing to be changed and shaped into your truth. Father, I pray that if we are clinging to any wrong thoughts, change us. If we know the truth, solidify it. But Father, unify us today. Bring us into community greater than we have known before. And let this word be your words and nothing else. Father, we love you. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I'm pretty sure that we all come to com with an idea of what confession is in different places. From where you grew up, from how you were raised, from the tradition that you come from. Everyone has a different view of confession, right? I, could, I think we can all agree. I'd say most of us probably have a negative outlook on confession if we're honest with ourselves. I know to some extent growing up, for me, it was. It had a negative connotation. But when we look at the word confession itself, it actually has a really positive meaning. The word confession in the Greek is actually two words combined. The first word is uh, assenting or agreement, and the second is word. And when we put these two words together, it means to acknowledge or to consent, to agree on something. So when we think about confession, there should be this positive mindset because agreeing, consent, all of those things sound like positive words, right? They sound positive to me. <laughs> I don't typically... Um, Think negatively about agreeing with someone. If you don't agree, then you don't agree. That's more the negative, right? We all need to liven up. <laughs> it's really not that heavy, I promise. Um, so I want us to come into this understanding of confession from a place of excitement and what it can mean to us as believers and as a community. So... If you've listened to me talk for any amount of time, you know that I like to categorize things. <laughs> so 
the first category um, that we're going to look at, there's two ways that we kind of break down this confession and how we can, can categorize them. I guess that's, that's the right word. Um, so there's the relationship between God and humanity and how confession interacts and works in that. And then there's the relationship person to person and how that relates to our confession and how we work that out in context. So today we are going to look at 1 John 1, 5 to 9, as we talk about confession in the context of God and humanity. I was going to read it from the screen, but I'll read it from my Bible then. <laughs> and because I'm blind, I'm going to hold it really close. So, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. John is showing us in this text, when he says God is light, that he walks in light, that he's telling us that God is perfect, that there is no flawless way in him, that he is good and righteous and all of the things that we are not. He's also revealing to us our imperfection, the things that hold us back from him, the things that keep us disconnected from the presence of God. From the moment of the fall, when we, see, <laughs> when we see Adam come in and say, I want to be God rather than to be like God, we see sin come in and darkness cover the earth. And there is a separation there that only one thing can connect, right? So then John goes in and he reminds us that it is the blood of Jesus that brings us into that light, that connects us to his glorious goodness and makes us able to walk in that light with him. And in that moment, all of our sins are covered, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, you are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away and the new has come. You are covered by the blood of Jesus. Your sins are no longer counted against you. But if you're anything like me, you woke up this morning and you were still inherently flawed. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I haven't had a perfect day yet. And I've been walking with God for quite some time. We won't talk about how long. <laughs> but you know what? Even though our sins are completely covered and we are this new glorious creation in our spirit, we still have a soul that wrestles with our humanity every day. So there's this 
world that we live in that's filled with failure and falling because the word sin in its original context is really just a failing, a moral failing. We've missed the mark. We aren't able to meet every perfect standard and moral standard that God would have, right? And so because we've missed that mark, which is an impossible standard to live by, that's why we have the law to show us that we're just not even capable of doing it in our own strength. But then God comes in and he says, you know what? I have better for you. I have beautiful for you. So through Jesus, we are made perfect in our spirit. But then we have this wrestling soul that's still struggling through our humanity, still struggling through our sin. And that's where confession comes in. Confession is the reconciliation and the unifying work of the cross acted out in our daily lives. It is the thing that draws us into repentance and it gives us a chance to allow the Holy Spirit to change in us the things that are separating us from him. See, God wants our confession not because he needs to know everything you've done. He already knows. He's aware. He knows that you stubbed your toe and you said a bad word and your kids saw it and now your whole house is in shambles. Like, he knows. I did not do that this morning, but it has happened, okay? <laughs> he knows. He's aware. But what he wants from us is a recognition that we failed because if not, okay, so I'm going to give you an example. It's going to be a very vague example because I don't have like a really spot on one at the moment. I'm sure it will come to me later. But think about relationships. We all have relationships. We all have people we're close to. But then say you do something kind of dumb, you know, like, and you hurt someone you love, right? When you're in a context with them, after you've done this hurtful thing, if you don't recognize that hurt, if you don't reach out and say, hey, I'm sorry for what I did, how can I make it right? Okay, I do have an example. So, <laughs> so I was supposed to call and make a reservation this week to go to dinner with Lila. And Lila was super excited about going to this one particular restaurant. But because I forgot, we didn't get to go. I mean, and when you look forward all week to something and then you get disappointed, that kind of stinks. Yeah, and I, like, I'd be the same way, so. <laughs> but if I had allowed, if I had just like kind of blown it off and not made it important because it's important to her, then that would drive a wedge in our relationship. But instead, I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm so sorry. This is completely my fault. It broke down those barriers. And it gave us an opportunity to say, well, you know what? I love you anyways. I'm not excited about what you did, but I love you anyways. You know? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See, God knew I needed to do that this week. <laughs> oh. But that's what we're doing. We're creating avenues for intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Every time we say, Father, I failed. Father, I I fell short of what you wanted for me in this life. Now, contextually, in reality, what does that look like? Does that mean that every time we do something that 
is wrong or bad. We have to stop and we need to pray and we need to just be like, okay, God, please forgive me of this and this and this. And we need to have a laundry list. No. The Holy Spirit prompts us to know what is stirring in us that's keeping us from intimacy with him. See, the thing is, God is never more close than he is in this moment, but our ability to understand and to see it, our ability to feel him and to experience him is based on our heart posture. And that heart posture requires confession because without it, we start building a wall and every little thing that we allow to, to disconnect us from the spirit of God, it just, it's just another brick in that wall. And so what we're seeing is, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> so what we see is we see the Holy Spirit moving in that. And as we confess, each little brick gets taken away. Each little brick gets pulled away, and we are able to then commune with God in the way that he wants for us. So I like to think of confession to God kind of like David does in the Psalms. All of, almost all the Psalms have a bit of confession in them, right? So there's confession with specific sins in mind, like the Holy Spirit's stirring in you. Say you had a rough week and you yelled at your kids. This is me probably at least once a week, just being honest. And the Holy Spirit's saying, that, that conversation, you missed the mark. That moment, you could have poured into your child, but instead, you threw arrows at them. That's, that's hard to hear. But then, I go in and I say, Father, I'm sorry. Change my heart. Change my mind so that I can be the parent that I'm meant to be, that can steward my children into discipleship rather than bullying them. And in those moments, he changes us. He shapes us. He makes us new. He, he reframes how we look at things the next time around. Does, do you get it right every time? No. But it works in us. So then we also see Psalms where David is saying, God, search my heart. Look inside of me. Search me and know me so that if there is any wicked way in me, that you will be able to pull it out of me. Because there are things in our lives that we don't see that are keeping us from God. There are things in us that we don't recognize as sin that we need God to show us. And so as we sit and as we pray, there are these ways that we can ask God to bring us into confession, which then leads us into repentance, which repentance is just turning around and going the other way. It's changing. And we don't have to be the change. God, the Holy Spirit in us, changes us. He just needs us to, to join in that with him, to say, God, I'm here for it. I want to, I want to participate with you. So it's all about intimacy. Confession between man and God is all about intimacy. Now, we're going to move into the next relationship, and that's person to person. 
Now, if we are image bearers of Christ, right, we reflect God's image in the earth. If we're to do that, then our relationship should do the same. Now, I'm going to qualify this with you cannot be intimate with everybody. We are people, we are flawed, we are messy, and you can't trust everybody with everything. Unfortunately, that's not reality. But as people, we are called to have a core group. We are called to intimate relationships. We are meant to have deep, intimate relationships. So when we talk about confession, within the context of person-to-person relationships, The first is, again, with the categories, the first avenue we we can express is confession that brings us closer to the Father, but that is active in communal relationship. See, we know that our faith is exercised in community, right? We've seen it here today in this moment, this morning, contending with one another for people who are struggling. We're called to communal confession. Now, does that look like you go up to a random stranger and say, hey, this is what I did this week. Uh, I did this and this and this. No. That's silly. But what it looks like is God creating a core of people around you in community, creating places where you can find deep, intimate relationship, where you can express the struggle that's holding you back from intimacy with God. And you can confess that struggle. We were at a worship night last night, and they were talking about pornography. That's, that's hard. That's a big topic. That's something that's really close to somebody and very shameful. But if someone is struggling in that, and it's separating them from the heart of God, then don't we want to be present in that with them? Isn't that, shouldn't that be our heart, that we are able to stand with someone and say, you know what, yes, this is not right, but you know what, you're loved anyways. You are a child of God, and this struggle is not going to overcome you because I'm going to stand beside you. But that only comes in intimate relationships that has to be built. You have to stay connected with the people around you. It is imperative that you have these circles so that if you start to walk down some path that seems hard, you have somewhere to land. You have place to be. You have people to say, hey, no, I'm, I'm not going to let you go that way. I'm not going to let you. Or if you do go, they're active and present in prayer, saying, you know what? You're going to do what you're going to do, but I'm going to pray for you. James 5, which some verse in James 5 says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will make your path straight. Never mind, that might be 
two verses in one. <laughs> Humility comes either by force or by submission. It is necessity that we humble ourselves before God and recognize our sin, but then that we also find people who can participate with us in life. Now, this isn't easy. It's not. It is probably one of the hardest parts of Christianity because we have to look around the room and recognize that every single person in this room is inherently flawed, that they will likely hurt us at some point, that they will likely fail us at some point. I don't know you about you, but I guarantee you, you've probably experienced hurt from someone. If you are human and in this room, you have been hurt by a person. And if you've been in church long enough, you've probably been hurt by the church. It's not an easy thing. But the reality is we are human. The church is made up of humans. And if we are to be community, if we are to be who we say we are in Christ, that means when someone hurts you, forgiveness is at the ready. Now, does that mean that that person gets off scot-free? No. It means that we come into that next section of confession. And when someone hurts us, or when you recognize that you've hurt someone, you go to them and you tell them, I am so sorry. I am, I am broken by what I've done to you because I know it grieves my heart and it grieves the heart of the Father to know that I've done something to disconnect this intimacy that we have with each other. Now, if you live in the world that I live in, <laughs> and you've seen a lot of church hurt come to the surface, you've seen a lot of ugly things that have happened. I don't think dancing around it or pretending like it doesn't exist is a good thing for us. I think recognizing it and calling it out for what it is is imperative. I'm not saying we don't love those people. We do. And we pray that there is reconciliation there for them with the people that they hurt. But the reality is, is when we look at confession from the person-to-person -person standpoint of someone who has hurt people, it is necessary for them to ask for forgiveness. Just like we talked about earlier in that relational context, if we don't come and confess our sin, that we have hurt someone and ask for forgiveness, it begins to build that wall back up. It damages our relationship with God and it damages our relationship with people. Hurt is one of the biggest things that can create walls in our life, places that we build up to protect ourselves. 
Because not only when someone hurts us does it put a wall between us and God, it puts a wall between us and every single person we ever come in contact with. And if as people, as people of Christ, as people who love deeply, we have to be open. We have to be open to people, to love them unconditionally like God loves us. Now, that is hard work because that means being vulnerable and be willing to be hurt at any point. Because you're giving love freely, without worry, without fear or doubt. You're being vulnerable and giving people a place to feel safe and loved and comfortable. But that comes at a price. That open state of love also means that there is open to be hurt. I love people. If you know me well enough, it doesn't take much for me to love you. <laughs> God has done that in me. Because if you had known me 20 years ago, I would have been like, oh, people stink. I don't want to have anything to do with them. But God, God does what he does, and he's changed me. And I genuinely love everyone, even people who are hard. And that right there is the Holy Spirit because <laughs> part of me will be like, I don't like this person, but then God will be like, but I love them. And because I love them, you, I want your heart to feel how much I love them. And I'm like, man, I just want to be mad right now, <laughs> you know? But what happens is God changes that in us. But it's a willingness to be vulnerable and a willingness to say, you know what, I might get hurt in this. But again, we go back to that circle, those circles of people. You don't give everybody everything. Okay, hear me when I say that. If you're in the midst of a struggle, don't tell a stranger that you're struggling. But find those people. If you're anything like me, I am a verbal processor. Does anybody know what a verbal processor is? <laughs> I have to have a very safe circle. Because sometimes things that come out of my mouth are not fully formed thoughts. They're just kind of like these like random thoughts that have popped into my head, and I'm trying to figure out what they are. And if somebody heard me, they might think I'm crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I'm a, I'm a, I'm a thinker, so like I want to think. And when I think, I like to think out loud. Apparently, I like to talk. <laughs> but I have a circle of people who I can sit and ponder and question and struggle and think through things with that I can say, oh, have you thought about this? And they're not going to be like, oh, my goodness, you're falling away from God. They're going to be like, uh, have you thought about this like this instead of maybe like this, you know? Or the best people in my life, just ask more questions. If you've ever been in that, in that circle of conversation with me, God usually gets us there, right? Like when we're thinking, when we're pondering, when we're wondering, he usually brings us to that place. But when we give questions and we start to wonder, he brings us into that place. But I couldn't do that without open, honest confession with people. If there was anything that was blocking us, I wouldn't be able to have those conversations because I wouldn't be able to trust them. So, 
we are, Neil's going to come up and he's going to tell us a story. And then we will. I know it's been heavy. Stick with me for 10 minutes here. A um, couple of things I want to say. Um, just let's take a breath for a moment. Anybody upset about the news this week about celebrations? Yes. Any bounty? Who? Let's just get an idea in the room. Who likes bounties? Yeah? I love bounties. And people like me have become really upset about the, what they've done with the celebrations. Taking out bounties out of celebrations was not a good idea. It's upset people. I just want to acknowledge that. Somebody needs to confess around that. But there is something that happens when you start messing about with the rappers, especially. I messed about with the rappers one time, and Judith really got her snickers in a Twix. Um, Daniel, put up that, uh, put up that clip. I, I want to f- focus um, on this, the importance of that verse uh, that Jackie was getting to. Um, James 5, 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray that you will be healed. Confession is so much more than um, just this individual relationship between you and God. This is really important. But confession is should not be individualized. This is communal. And that might be difficult, but I... I think we've been trying to. I think we've been trying to communicate that lots over the last few while, communicating it again on on Wednesday, as we sit with this with Genesis and hearing different stories and different opinions. Something beautiful about about being a community of people willing to learn together, and it's the same with confession. Being a being a group of people that are willing to confess, because if James is serious, if that half brother of Jesus is serious here, there's healing to be found in confessing to one another. And so this is part of it. I, I, I don't need. To, I'm not going to dwell on this, but I've just found this language that, that um, Judith introduced me to over the last couple of years really helpful. Just as a parent, and as a friend, as a, co- a colleague, whatever this it, language of rupture and repair. It's this. It's confession is almost a step towards repair, step towards being reconcilers, because that's who we are. If we've called ourselves followers of Jesus, we're reconcilers. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. And so whenever there's a rupture in relationship, and Jackie's already talked about that rupture between relationship with God, but also that rupture between relationship with one another. And as ambassadors of reconciliation, there's a call on us to, uh, to repair. And that looks like owning it. And I know that Jackie's covered some of this already, but there's something really important about confession, about owning it. And maybe even what this clip says, naming it, owning it, beginning to understand what you've done. One of the things I hate more than anything, when people come to to say sorry, and I hate it in myself too, it's not as if I don't do it, sorry if I've offended you. And it's why in the Jewish tradition, they use something similar to this. You can take that down, Daniel. Thank you. They use something similar to this. They talk about um, the first step towards repair and repentance is confessing and owning it, and then making a making a big making a start to change, and then making amends. And then surprisingly, this was really surprising to me. Fourth was an ap- apologize. 
And what they're trying to communicate in, in, uh, in, within the Jewish community is if, if you've done the work of understanding, if you've done the work of naming and owning what you've done or what you've said, then your apology actually means something. If you, if you come to confess without acknowledging and owning what you've done, then you use this language, I'm sorry if I've offended you. What a cop-out. It's a cop-out. I'm sorry if. Maybe some people in the room are squirming because you're, you're, like, you're owning the fact that you've done that this week. If I was sitting down, I would be squirming in my chair. Owning it and naming it, apologizing, because whenever you begin to do the work of understanding how you've impacted that other person, the apology looks different. The apology, the apology is heard differently. And I think that is really important because the fifth step on this in the, within this Jewish tradition is then you make different choices the next time. And if you don't do the work to change, you'll find yourself, and I sat there this morning, I found myself almost weeping because I found myself like just, just wanting to do that, like that rupture in a relationship with God and just like confessing and realizing that this, the, these five steps within the Jewish community I feel like a bit of a gift because there is a, if we've got to that place where we've apologized, we've done the work of understanding why we've broke down relationship, whether it's vertical or horizontal, then you'll, do, you'll make a different choice the next time you find yourself in that same place. I don't have time this morning, but I've just been fascinated by looking at communities and tribes that are communal, where, where being community is the norm. So, for example in the Jewish community, or certain tribes around the world. Communal, community is just the norm. So when it comes to studying the Bible in certain traditions and certain tribes, like they know no other way than sitting the Bible in front of them and just doing the work together. And I think, and I want to suggest that it is the same, it's the same with confession. There is studies have been done that the more, the more communal communities are, the more empathetic they are. And so I want, to, I want to tell a story that I hope would inspire us to be a, to be a people that would see the value in, in congregational confession or whatever language you want to put on that. I just want to share a story about uh, something that took place 300 years ago. And then I'm going to invite us to stand together as a congregation, and pray a prayer together. Um, some of you will be familiar with 24-7 uh, prayer, but some of you might not be familiar with, with the inspiration of how it all began. They were inspired and caught up by the story that took place in the old Czech Republic in 1722. Um, a group of Moravians, they, um, they had experienced years of persecution. And um, a group of young Christians, almost like refugees seeking shelter, they found shelter on land owned by a man. And I'm almost telling this story because I just love saying his name, Count Zinzendorf. Huh? Count Zinzendorf, a Christian landowner. Christian landowner who was passionate about those people that were on the margins, those people that were on the fringes. And so he, um, he was willing to take these people, Christians, experienced years of persecution, and he gave them a place of land. And the people, they named the land Hernhut. 
And it means that the Lord watches over us. And after years of persecution, after years of wandering, found themselves in a place that uh, somebody had welcomed them in, gave them land, and um, they called it Hernhut, the Lord watches over us. And what began out incredibly uh, peaceful, um, unfortunately, this is the story of the church over centuries, is that they began to fight over secondary things, things that were not important. Well, not that they're not, sorry, I shouldn't say that, not that they were not important, but of secondary importance to, to the main thing of loving God and loving neighbor. And their love for God and their love for neighbor grew cold. Their rupture in relationship uh, here, horizontally, the rupture in relationship with one another affected relationship with, with God. It grew cold. And I love this story of Zinzendorf because Zinzendorf was not just a normal landowner. He was committed to doing something about this. He looked out over Hernhut and he seen the factions and the breakdown and the fighting. And he began to go with an open Bible from house to house. He didn't call everybody together, but he began to go house to house with an open Bible. And he began to sit with families after families and urge them to return to the basics of following Jesus. Something of what we're, so, not, I'm not comparing it, but what's what we're trying to do these Sunday mornings, like just coming with an open Bible and urging us to get back to the basics of following Jesus, where love of God and love of neighbor are lived out together in community, prayer, and mission. That was the passion. That was what was burning and fueling uh, Count Zinzendorf. And so it worked. He, this community of people agreed to return to Christian discipleship again of loving God and of loving neighbor towards uh, community prayer and mission. And on the 13th of August, 1727, the, the community, the residents of Hernhut gathered together for worship and for a public demonstration almost of unity, a public commitment to unity. And something surprising happened. And this is the part of the story, and, and some of you will not be familiar with this story at all. For those of you that are, this is the part of the story that I never heard before. This is the part of the story that sometimes gets lost within all the miraculous and beautiful and wonderful things that took place. But what the leaders did, something special happened whenever the leaders made space for confession. Leaders made space for confession. And I don't know who coined the free, I don't know who coined this, who made this statement, but without warning, they said, without warning, the presence of God overwhelmed the confessing congregation. Without warning, the, the presence of God overwhelmed the confessing con congregation. The rupture that had taken place. And even there's there's a there's a an account that Zinzendorf wrote 27 years later, and he spoke about what happened at the communion, at the, at, the, at the Lord's table, as they made space for confession. And he, and he talks, I don't have the quote here, but he just, what he speaks about the power of uh, confession is, is beautiful. And Zinzendorf also said this, after gathering, they left at around noon, and nobody was talking. It says that they were speechless. And they were speechless because they hardly knew 
whether they belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven. Can you imagine that? I can barely imagine that. But that was, that was how Zinzendorf uh, summarized what took place, is this congregation of people confessed to God, but I think in this moment, more significantly to one another. And the presence of God overwhelmed them to the point where they didn't know whether they still belonged to the earth or they had already gone to heaven. And so somebody has described it, and that's why I wanted to finish with this, that the dead weight of unconfessed sin was lifted from Hernhut, was lifted from this community, that had broken down because of fighting over things of secondary importance. They returned once again to love of God and love of neighbor, fueled once again to be the community they had called them to be, to be a people of prayer and to be a people of mission. The event the event became known as the Moravian Pentecost. And it sparked a 100-year streak of unceasing prayer. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like to be a part of a community, be part of a group of people who've been brought in from the edges and the fringes and have found themselves overwhelmed by the presence of God as they confess that 100 years of prayer was sparked at this very moment. And they prayed night and day. They prayed 24-7 for 100 years, nonstop. And it ignited, it ignited mission and prayer and justice all over every continent of the world out of this little village, this little community of Hernhut. And I think there's a... Like, I don't, I'm not always like this. I can be incredibly doubtful and skeptical at times, but there's a moment of naivety just feels like sweeping across me in this moment to, to believe that if that can happen in a little random place in the outskirts of the Czech Republic 300 years ago, why on earth would it not happen in a little random village in County Armagh 300 years later? There's a, there's a call on us. And I know God is that good that he could, he could do whatever he wants. But there's something that happened when a confessing congregation stood before God and before one another and owned it and named it, understood what they had done, and the presence of God came. And mission and justice and prayer was fueled. And we're still, because of 24-7, inspired by that story, we continue to be caught up in that 300 years later. And so I'd love us to, I'm not going to force you into to pray in this prayer, but I would love you to stand if you're, if you're up for that. And Daniel's going to put a prayer up here. I, I hope that um, if you can't see it, you're, you're all scot-free. Well done. You don't have to, public, you don't have to publicly confess together. <laughs> I'm only joking. Um, but if you can read this, I'm going to be in control here, but if you can go at my pace, so we'll do this together. Is that all right? Sounds very controlling, but... Don't want to be all over the place. This is really important. It really is important. I don't want to make light of this moment. We're serious about this. I, I'm believing with some of what Jackie has shared, some of the story that we believe that there's something to a confessing congregation. What would happen when we restore relationship with him? And what would happen when we begin to restore relationship with one another? And so we're going to pray this prayer. It's in the, common, the Book of Common Prayer, some stunning liturgy. Again, 
We're picking up traditions, 100 years old again this morning. We're praying this prayer together. So let's, let's do that, and then I'll hand back to Lila. Let's go. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.